Hello and welcome to another episode of Got 10 Minutes brought to you by samelogic.com in product surveys powered by AI. I'm your host, Dwayne Samuels, and today we are truly privileged to have a remarkable guest with us. Ethel Bruce is a leading public interest technologist whose work sits at the fascinating intersection of technology, policy, and society. Afua has an impressive history of serving her country and her community through various roles, demonstrating the powerful impact that technology can have when used for the public good. Her career started in the tech industry at IBM as a software engineer, then she took her talents to the FBI using her engineering and management skills to serve her country. From there, she moved to the White House, where she directed federal interagency coordination through the National Science and Technology Council. Subsequently, Afua led the Public Interest Technology Program at New America. She served as the Chief Program Officer at DataKind, and currently Afua is the founder and principal at ANB Advisor Group, an organization supporting responsible technology development. Afua is the co-author of The Tech That Comes Next, alongside with Amy Sample Ward. This book outlines how companies can deploy technology to improve people's lives and, sol and solve social problems. Afua, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me today. Uh, you're welcome. And let's jump right into it. So who is Afua? How does she get into the industry? And what has her journey been like from IBM to becoming an author? Absolutely. Uh, my name, obviously, is Afua Bruce. And what keeps me up at night is really thinking about how technology impacts people's lives. I'm, I'm trained as a computer engineer. That's what my undergraduate degree from Purdue was in. But and through that education, we're really focused on thinking about what cool things we can do with technology. How do we push the um, how do we push innovation in technology? That technically is important to me. But what's also important to me is how do people use technology? How are people's lives affected by technology? Who is who has access to technology? Who is left out of technology? Uh, who is harmed by technology and who benefits from technology? That is what keeps me going, and that's really what has driven my career is trying to find answers to those questions. And through that work, I've been able to spend time in the private sector and the government sector and the nonprofit sector and even working with academics, all ways of getting to this answer of how do we make sure that technology can work the best for all people. Mm. And, and why software engineering? What prompted you to go into software engineering? Was it something that you experienced as a child? Was it through your teenage years? Um, what happened? I have always been fascinated with computers and with technology. Growing up, I loved playing with anything technical, anything from um, remote controlled cars to playing video games to trying out little programs as early as I think middle school for me. I really enjoyed computers. When I was in high school, though, and trying to figure out what I would major in, I was actually stuck between computer engineering and English. I am. Um, the child of Ghanaian immigrants. And so you're familiar with that culture. Obviously, I chose being an engineer first. Luckily, it turned out I love software engineering. I really do enjoy the program as aspect, the debugging aspect, the designing aspect. I enjoy the whole process. Um, but that's how I found my way to software engineering. Lovely. And what inspired you to co-write the tech that comes next? And how did your experiences and in, in, in public interest technology shape the insights that you shared in the book? 
The conversation around the ethical implications of technology can often be framed in a negative way. Here are all of the ways technology is failing here, all of the ways we are overseeing the ethical concerns of technology. Here are all the ways technology is failing people. And all of that is completely true. We have seen time and time again how technology systems literally do not see categories of people. We see data that is not disaggregated by gender. We see um, benefits access programs that disproportionately prevent access to legally entitled benefits to people of color. We see other ways that technology harms people. What inspired me to write this book with Amy Sample Ward, who's my wonderful co-author, what inspired me to write this book is we really wanted to tell a story of how do we imagine technology development done in a different way? How do we really give people a framework, an idea of what we can build towards that is an ethical framing of technology. Additionally, we knew that there were people out there who were doing great things with technology and communities today, really centering humans in the work that technology does. And we wanted to be able to uplift those stories to give people concrete ideas and hope, really, of this is what is possible. This is what's being done today. If we think about it more, what even more could we do to build a more equitable world? Mm. And then how does uh, the tech that comes next serve as a, as a guide for, for change makers, philanthropists, uh, um, technologists aiming to build a more equitable world, especially in the coming age of, of, of AI? Absolutely. I would say in the book that the book is divided sort of into two categories. The first is really coming to an understanding of what our values are, because the reality is what we value is what we build. Even if we don't articulate conversations and values around when are we prioritizing certain communities over other communities, when are we prioritizing profits over impact and other conversations like that, other decisions like that show up in the code that we write. And so in the book, The Tech That Comes Next, we start by articulating values of if we want to have a more equitable world, what are these values that we are going to be building this more equitable world on? So those are things like valuing um, lived experience in addition to uh, formal educational experience. So things like valuing and uh, making sure that we build in space for people to learn new skills and to actually use those skills, recognizing the skills we need five years from now, two years from now, are going to be different from the skills that we need today. The values also include making sure that we're building on accessibility and accessibility defined in a really broad term. So not just web standards, accessibility, but everything to include as you are designing your product, how do you make sure that the focus group meetings you're having are actually happening in a place at a time in a forum where people can actually attend and contribute? How have you stripped jargon from the conversations you're having so the people you're talking to can actually engage with you and provide you useful information? How do you make sure you're really centering community's needs and what they want to accomplish in the design and in the testing and in the development of the products that you're building. It's the first part. The second part of the book, to give people an example, to give people an idea of how to move forward, is we identify five major roles of which we think people will identify with at least one of them. We identify the roles of a social impact organization leader, a technologist, a funder or investor, a policymaker, and a community member. And now each of these five roles have different levers they can pull when it comes to funding technology, designing technology, and implementing technology. And so we want people to see 
really what's possible to think about how can we fund technology differently in ways that might allow for more inclusive development? How can we make sure that technologists think about the long-term impacts and long-term sustainability of the tools and products that we're developing? How do we think about social impact organization leaders? And so when something has that social impact focus, whether it's through a government agency or through an NGO or even through an academic institution, how do we make sure that they are equipped to make the right decisions and their staffs are equipped to actually use the technology correctly? Mm. You also discussed the need for intentional um, uh, process uh, of development to maximize uh, benefits and minimize harm for all technology users. Uh, how can organizations ensure that they adapt to this approach as AI continues to evolve and, and become more, um, more progressive? Absolutely. And this conversation is certainly applicable to AI, but AI is another type of technology. So really the same principles as apply as we've used or we should be using for other types of technology as well. So as we think about designing new AI systems and products powered by AI, we want to make sure that we are really intentional about starting with our customers' needs, starting with our community's needs. Who is actually going to be using this? What is the real use case for the product that you are developing and how will people be engaging with that product. Um, I think a good rule of thumb is always, if you took away the fancy technology, are you still solving a problem that people need or have you built a problem around a particular technology, maybe AI, maybe anything else that you want to use? So I think that is the first thing to keep in mind. The second is to recognize that we can include customers, we can include community members, throughout the process. So not just at the start or maybe at the end, but really how do you bring in ways to build in and to bring in that um, customer community impact along the way? How do you work interdisciplinary along the way? I was able to work with a tech company last year on updating their product development process to actually include uh, sort of a impact and ethics check along the way. They had an idea for a particular project that they started out with. Their engineering team got started uh, working with the product managers and with the engineers to start developing this. And then a couple of months in, so fairly early into their development cycle, we brought in an interdisciplinary team of some potential customers and community members, some historians, some ethicists, and said, let's now go over this design and how this particular tool is developing. That interdisciplinary team then was able to poke some holes and here are some of the ethical implications. Here are some of the societal implications that you perhaps didn't think of um, in the design process engineer. Or if you did think of them, they are still there because now this interdisciplinary team has weighed in, has really seen these risks. So I think the second thing for people to think about is really how do you bring in that, um, that interdisciplinary approach at multiple points throughout the process? Inclusivity. Um, so, so AI has the potential for great good and, and great harm, right? Um, how does the book address the dual nature of AI and what guidance does it provide to ensure uh, the responsible use of, of the technology? Absolutely. So in the book, we talk about technology, AI, for example, there are a couple of examples in the books that specifically touch on the use of AI. And data science about both the hope of the AI and the negative impacts that AI can have. As with many other tools, right, something can be used and have great impact, either positively great or negatively great impact. And so the thing to 
think about is one, to recognize that that's always possible. If you are designing something and you are looking at your product and you say, there is only an upside to here, to this product, I would encourage you to continue to look until you find what the downside is and then think about what those mitigation plans are. Um, because that is, I think, the first challenge. Oftentimes, you hear people talk about unintended consequences and the unintended consequences of AI, especially, um, but some other technologies more broadly, are off often fall within the same category. Black and brown people were disproportionately harmed here. Women weren't seen here. Um, there is a disproportionate uh, divvying up of the resources that are actually being uh, executed and are supposed to be decided upon by this particular product. These are sort of known categories of unintended consequences. So first, just asking yourself, well, what what of these unintended consequences might my product be at risk for? And um, checking that out, I think, is is important to think through. Mm. Can, can you share some some case studies or examples from the book uh, that uh, illustrate how AI and other uh, technologies can be used to solve pressing issues? Absolutely. One of my favorite examples in the book was the um, the data science example, actually. But we'll, for the purpose of this, we'll say it's close enough to to AI. And that's uh, a project um, that was done by John Jay College out of New York City. John Jay College is a four-year institution and has a number of students that are first generation first generation college students uh, who are their students. It has a number of students who start their college education later in life, which for college just means early 20s often, um, and is a very diverse population of students. They had a new dean who joined their school several years ago, and she was looking at the numbers and said, you know, we have a lot of programs, as most institutions do, to make sure that students get from their first year into their second year, that they complete their first year and make it to their second year and their sophomore year of school. But looking at these numbers, we see that we have a not insignificant number of students who are completing three quarters of the credit they need to graduate, but aren't ultimately graduating. What can we do about this? So I think the first thing there is that she asked a different question, a new question that hadn't been asked before. Uh, the second thing is that being an academic institution, they actually had the data they needed to solve this problem. They had 20 years of data that they had kept. So they paired with some data scientists and the team of data scientists came in and ran a couple dozen models uh, to say, what is going on here? What can we do? And through that process, the team of data scientists, the model they developed was able to identify students who were at risk of dropping out based on a number of factors and was also able to identify a number of potential interventions, whether it was uh, help with scheduling, help with moving around classes, help with um, getting access to funding or a number of other interventions. The John Jay College staff then made the final determination about who to reach out to and how to reach out, what intervention to reach out. I think what's important also to note from this example is that the humans were left in the loop ultimately. And so I think sometimes with AI systems especially, we want to design something that will completely remove the human for the loop. I think especially when you are working with something uh, sensitive around uh, giving access to to benefits or something else. You want to make sure that a human is in the loop there and for that expertise that can be brought into the process. So that's the first thing. The second is that when John Jay College talks about this model that they still use today, they talk about the fact that after two years of using this model, um, more than 900 or about 900 students graduate, 900 additional students graduated at the cost of the university 
of mm. only about $240. And so when you think about the number of lives that are changed and families that are changed because someone was able to actually complete their degree, get a better job, pay back loans if they had some loans, that impact is really important. And the point there is that the impact and the focus isn't on, hey, we built this great data science system, we built this great AI tool. But again, it is the fact that we had 900 additional people graduate from college. So again, as we think about how to roll out AI and how to make sure AI is using, really focusing on what is that problem we're solving? How is AI actually serving people as opposed to people serving some AI system that's somewhere and it's been left to its own devices? Mm. It's amazing. And it, it ties into my next question. Like the, the book emphasizes putting people first um, and, and in particular, the vulnerable ones, the vulnerable people. So uh, at the center of this decision making, people are important. And how does this principle apply to um, the development and uh, the deployment of, of, of uh, artificial uh, intelligent models, technologies? And what are the practical steps that organizations can take to make sure that that this happens, not only schools. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first point that I encourage people to think about is especially with AI systems, especially as we have generative AI systems, really making sure that you're intentional about when and how often to keep humans in the loop for these systems, right? We could design AI systems that completely remove humans, but especially with generative AI, for example, then will be subject to making decisions and embedding decisions that are made based on hallucinations, for example, or other inaccurate information or um, other ways that the AI system reached a conclusion or created a piece of content that a human might have been able to catch and confirm that was not accurate. So I think first is thinking through what um, and when and how to leave humans in the loop, I think is really important. The second point is, I think, to take your time in making some of these decisions. I know the pressures to adopt generative AI right now feel overwhelming and pervasive and that they must be done right away. But really taking some time to think through as we design this system, as we use this new, um, this, these new AI products, when do we have the power to turn something on? When do we have the power to turn something off? What is the process for being able to turn something off if we see that it has been running for a while and now suddenly one group of people, one group of customers are being disproportionately harmed or left out. What does that inclusion process look like there? I think also thinking through the questions of um, access and privacy are really important, especially as you use more AI systems. What does it mean to um, advocate for or to protect uh, some of your uh, your consumers and your customers through the technology. What will that look like in the actual code that you develop? Mm. And, and also in the context of AI, uh, you argue that uh, simply adding more or better technology doesn't really make it better. It doesn't uh, necessarily increase uh, the, the effectiveness. Could you elaborate more on this and provide insights on how to leverage uh, AI effectively and responsibly? Absolutely. Um, as you you mentioned, having a lot of something could be good. Having a very much a lot of something does not mean that it is that much better than the first thing that you had. And so I think it's really important that as you decide how much AI, for example, you want to use, you're really focused back on what is the problem that we're solving? Who are our customers and how are they using this? And how are their lives, their habits changing? Because if... Um, 
you through your your product that does use AI has helped increase people's let's say live satisfaction or ability to order your product or to engage with whatever service you're providing, let's say by 50%. And then you can develop something else that will be super fancy and uses, let's say, a couple new large language models or whatever else, but then it goes from 50% to 51%. Is that actually having a meaningful impact on your customer base, on effectiveness, on satisfaction? Oftentimes, I think the answer is no. So really looking back at where are people actually getting benefit from what you're using? Is the right answer developing a new AI product? Or is the right answer something else in what you could provide to your customers? Is it more in the service that you provide? Is it another product that you could build that goes along the first product that you had? Is it uh, building up a new community to support your customers? Thinking about that bigger picture, what's the ultimate impact that you're having? And is it worth that additional uh, tool? I'm sure we've all used different products or softwares that have had new fancy software rolled out. And then I actually just can't do what I want it to do. I have a new version of Instagram and I actually just can't figure out how to share this reel with my friends. Um, you know, th so really thinking through that, I think is important. Mm. What key takeaways would you like readers off the book um, to, to, to have, um, especially those working in, in uh, technology or policy um, as they navigate the challenges uh, you know, brought upon like by this new age of 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 AI and everything that's happening currently in this in this period. Absolutely, it's the first thing that I want people to take away is that the tech that comes next is about people, and so really making sure that you are centering people in the technology that you're developing and the use cases you're coming up with is really important. The second thing that I would say to the policy point is that it's a very fluid environment. Flexibility is important, mm -hmm. but also making smart and strong decisions about your product and uh, the impact it has on privacy, on security are decisions that you as a product owner, you as a business owner can make for yourselves in a, in a world where the regulations will be constantly changing, it seems. Understanding what your values are and how that relates to internal policies you want to set, I think is very important. And then the third is, I think, to think that and to recognize that AI is really cool. I, you know, I used to help lead an organization that did AI for impact-driven organizations around the world. Fan of AI. It's cool. Uh, but also recognize when it's the right solution and sometimes it's not. Being able to make that distinction, I think, actually requires a level of techno technical uh, sophistication that... We don't always lean into, but recognizing that that's a decision that you can make is important. Yeah. That, um, this is my last question here. I ask everyone who comes on the show this, yeah. um, but uh, what's what's one weakness that you've turned into your strength? I'd say one weakness that I've turned into a strength is my love of process. Um, my family I would say perhaps does not appreciate my love of process when I send out uh, briefing documents for the next visit to my house, um, but, um, or, you know, how the Thanksgiving dinner will be served and when we will eat and why and how and all of those details. However, uh, it serves me really well in uh, the work that I do with organizations to think about how to streamline or um, processes and inefficiencies. Got it.
And also, like, where can uh, we find your book? Absolutely. My book is available. My book, The Tech That Comes Next, is available wherever books are sold um, on your big uh, online platforms or at your local bookstore. You can also go to www.thetechthatcomesnext.com and find other ways to engage with myself and Amy Sample Ward. Awesome. Well, Fuwith, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm looking forward to sharing this episode with our audience, and I hope uh, everyone who listens gets the book and uh, you know, just improve their lives uh, with everything that's mentioned within the book. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks for listening to the Got 10 Minutes podcast. To stay in touch, follow us on LinkedIn or the podcast app you're listening to this on right now for more episodes. Take care. Mm-hmm.